Well, greetings, brethren. Happy Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, thank you to our wonderful musicians. It brings a lot of joy when we can be uplifted by music, and it's amazing to see the talent that God has put in his church. And a, a remarkable talent by one family. All of them can sing. That's amazing. I can't sing at all. <laughs> and all this talent in one family. And uh, thank you, Brother Ray, especially for that, the, the lyrics in, in that song that you sang. Very, very nicely done. Appreciate the offertory, and appreciate Pastor Mike, uh, all the way what, to a 10-hour drive to be here, and just brings a lot of energy and innovation and ideas, and we certainly appreciate him. And I also want to just say thank you to all those who are working behind the scenes. Uh, everything that's set up here, it just runs so smoothly, and we don't see them, but they're at work, and we certainly appreciate what they do. Pastor Murray uh, took us back in time, the early 80s, and some of us have been keeping the feast for some time, been in this walk for a while. I had the opportunity to speak to a, a lady who had been in the church for over four decades. It was a high day, and we were sitting at the uh, potluck meal, and we were talking. She made this statement, and I'm going to quote it verbatim. I don't know about anyone else here, but I know that if I die tonight... I'll make it. And when I heard this, I don't know about anyone else here, but I know that if I die tonight, I'll make it. On the one hand, it's wonderful that this sister had such confidence. On the other, I was deeply saddened. I was heartbroken. And I thought, after four decades of feast-keeping, and walking with God, is this the conclusion? That I don't know about anyone else here, but if I die, I know I've made it. Don't know, don't care about you. It's all about me. And I just thought, surely, after so many feasts and Sabbaths, we must be able to shift our thinking beyond ourselves. And I think this, I'll make it into the kingdom. I think it's a theology that is no different than I'll make it into heaven. We just replace heaven with kingdom. But it's the same thinking about me and my salvation. And this is not at all what is meant by the scriptures. No original Christian Hebrew would think like this. I want to give you a sense of the space that we occupy. The moon is 384,000 kilometers away from us. The sun is 149,597,870,000 kilometers away from us. Scientists as they try to calculate the size of the observable universe, calculate that it is some... Well, let me first say what a light year is. A light year is how we measure distance. So light is the fastest thing we know. It will travel in the course of a year 9.46 trillion kilometers. So light, if you give it a year will travel 9.46 trillion kilometers. So it's a, a way of measuring distance. 
The universe, they calculate, is 92 billion light years in diameter. So the observable universe, if you were to go from one end to the other, 92 billion light years, and a light year is 9.46 trillion kilometers. I think it's a pretty big place. And I think when we think of the size of this universe, and that's just the observable, they have no idea how big the unobservable universe, there's no light, we can't measure it. It's huge. I think there's more going on here than me getting into the kingdom or you getting into the kingdom. I think that whether or not we existed, something would be going on that's beyond whether or not we exist. And I think we've got to shift our thinking from this self-centeredness. So I've come up with a solution. It's a vaccine. It's the anti-narcissism vaccine. And I'd like all of us to take it out, just reach into a pocket, and take out this vaccine, and just give yourself a shot. Okay, everybody give yourself a shot in the arm, and we'll do this every once in a while. Every time we find ourselves getting self-centered, we'll just take a shot of this anti-narcissism vaccine, where we can get ourselves out of the middle of the picture and try to see what's really going on here. I want to put our focus where God's focus is. And quite by accident, I was at a conference, and somebody came in late, and a bit cool weather, he was wearing a jacket, and he sat beside me, and I looked at his crest. And on the crest, I saw these words, that others may live. And I had no idea what it was, but I just thought, wow, what a cool slogan, what a cool saying that others may live. So I happened to be in Ottawa, and I mentioned this, and Brother Eric, who's sitting at the back there, said to me where it came from, that it's part of the Canadian Armed Forces Search and Rescue Technicians. And this is the quote that it comes from. This is the graduating statement. When they graduate, they all make this pledge. Without regard for my personal comfort or self-advancement, to the best of my ability, and to the limitations of my physical and psychological endurance, I solemnly pledge to make every effort to return to safety those victims of disaster entrusted to my care by the assignment of the mission to which I have consented. These things I shall do that others may live. Isn't that beautiful? Like, wow. These are carnal human beings that are operating above the level of God's children. That we as God's children move through life wondering whether we will make it into God's kingdom. While carnal human beings move through life saying, I will sacrifice everything if I can save others. Something is wrong with this picture. Wouldn't you agree? Can we rise at least to this level, if not above? as God's children, filled with the Holy Spirit, one of these search and rescue technicians commented on this pledge. And she says this, a high level of competency and skill is required in order to function in the high-risk environment of search and rescue in Canada. 
The training that Canadian Armed Forces search and rescue technicians undergo is intense, as are the conditions in which they operate. They must establish and build confidence in their technical skills and have complete trust in both themselves and their teammates. Pastor Mike spoke about trust yesterday. We're here learning to relate to each other, to build that trust. We're, we're learning our ways with the scriptures so that we understand what we're doing, what God requires us to do. I want us, brethren, to write a book together. The title of the book, That Others May Live. The book is going to have five chapters. Please write these chapter headings down. Number one, teaching teachers. Chapter one is teaching teachers. Chapter two, God's glory. Chapter three, glad tidings. Chapter four, beasts of burden. And chapter five, atonement at last. Teaching teachers, God's glory, glad tidings, beasts of burden, and atonement at last. What I'd like you to do now is with a partner, look at these five chapters. They're not in the right order. Let's reorder them. We're going to tell this story from here to eternity about what God is doing. And we're going to use these as the chapter headings. So just go ahead, find a partner, and let's put these in the right order. Number four was beasts of burden. Beasts of burden. So let me go. Uh, teaching teachers, God's glory, glad tidings, beasts of burden, and atonement at last. Teaching teachers, God's glory, glad tidings. Thanks, Becca. Beasts of burden, plural. and atonement at last. So I'm going to go ahead and give you chapter one. OK, chapter one, Beasts of Burden. We're going to begin this story, chapter one, from here to eternity, with beasts of burden. What do I mean? Turn with me to Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10. That this process that we're engaged in, and what God is doing here on earth, we need to understand through this lens of these beasts of burden. Here in Isaiah 10 and verse 5, Isaiah writes, God speaks, 
O Assyria, notice this, the rod of my anger. So this beast power, Assyria, as violent and as vicious as it is, it is actually a tool in God's hands. It is a tool. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is my indignation. Why does God have this rod of anger? I will send him against a hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the sea. So God raises up this beast to destroy a hypocritical nation. And then in verse 11, we read this. Shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Therefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord has performed his work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high so there is wickedness in the earth. Mankind is wicked, beginning with the Jews and Israel. So they have to be punished. But there's wickedness in the Gentiles. And God uses the wickedness of the Gentiles to punish Israel, but then he doesn't let them off the hook. He punishes them for their wickedness. So as much as they're a tool in God's anger, they're carrying the burden of being that tool. I wouldn't want to touch the apple of God's eye. But yet God raises up these beast powers to punish the apple of his eye. But anybody who touches the apple of his eye must be punished. Now with that view in mind, come with me to Daniel chapter 2, a well-known prophecy. But let's look at it now through the lens of these beasts of burden that they are carrying out the will of the Lord. But because of what they do, they will be punished. Daniel 2, and this, of course, is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that so troubled him that he was going to kill all the wise men if they could not tell him, not just the interpretation, but they had to tell him the dream as well, and then the interpretation. This is given to Daniel, and in verse 31, we'll cut in, where he says, you, O king, saw... And behold, a great image. That image will represent a series of beast powers that are designed to afflict God's people. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before you, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. You saw till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon its feet that were of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. So this image, as powerful as it is, will be punished. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces. It has served its purpose broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. 
What we see here, brethren, and I think we know if we take this image and we were to lay it horizontally, we would have a timeline from Nebuchadnezzar until the return of Christ, showing these different kingdoms that will take control over Jerusalem. And so what we have to understand as well, we don't just lie the image horizontally. That matters. That gives us the timeline. But Nebuchadnezzar saw it standing up. There's also significance to the vertical posture of this image, that it is standing on the city of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of Babylon. He's looking from Babylon, his kingdom, down, and every kingdom that follows takes control of Babylon. So it's Babylon versus Jerusalem. And this image is designed to afflict Jerusalem. It sends its system worldwide. Eventually, from Jerusalem, another mountain established, or kingdom is established, and the system of the city of Jerusalem will then spread worldwide. So we have the competition of two different systems, the Babylonian system versus the system of Zion. But today, under the Babylonian system, God's people are afflicted. Now, unfortunately, when we think of this image uh, standing, not just lying down, uh, Brother Mike, we don't get to see its socks. We don't see the socks. But we do see that it's mixed with uh, clay and iron. So it is vulnerable. In its foundation, it is vulnerable. Look now at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And in verse 4, This is uh, Daniel's prayer for his people. He says, And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession. So what is his confession? And said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and from your judgments. So I don't have the time to read the whole prayer, but I would ask you to do that. Uh, Take the time to read the whole prayer. But let's drop down to verse 12. And he he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us. So there are words which have been spoken against us. We'll find those in Deuteronomy. And against our judges that judged us, by bringing upon us a great evil. For under the whole heaven has not been done as has been done upon Jerusalem. Jerusalem should be the source of righteousness for the whole world instead of its source of wickedness and hypocrisy. So God raises up this great image, this antichristic image, to punish Jerusalem. And, and Daniel now understands what's happening. And so he's saying, this is the very thing that was written against us, and I've never seen anything done under heaven as has been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, in the Torah, all this evil has come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore has the Lord watched upon the evil. God is doing this. God is overseeing this. This is God's operation. So these beasts are carrying the burden of God's judgment. 
Therefore has Yahweh watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For Yahweh our God is righteous in all his works, which he does. For we obeyed not his voice. In other words, the covenant was very clear. If you do this, you'll receive these blessings. But if you do this, you'll receive these cursings. And so Daniel's looking at God's word in in the Torah, and he's saying God is faithful. He is doing exactly what he said he would do. And now, O Lord our God, you have brought your people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have gotten you renowned this day, as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Now notice this in verse 20. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, while I was actually asking for this and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, he says, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give you skill and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the commandment came forth, and I've come forth to show you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. So Daniel needed to understand this, and we can now gain access to the understanding that was given to him. Seventy weeks are determined upon your people and upon your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So Daniel came to understand these beasts of burden will carry the burden of the judgment of the Lord for 70 weeks or 70 times 7. And then, their purpose will have been concluded, and their purpose is to finish the transgression, and to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. So this image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, as dreadful as it was, as powerful and vicious as it was, it is actually serving the Lord's purpose of bringing his people to repentance. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. Glad tidings. Glad tidings. Turn with me to Daniel 12. As much as Israel must suffer, and the whole world, through the power of these beast systems, there's good news. And we just had a glimpse of it there, in chapter 9, but let's continue the prophecy in chapter 12 and verse 1. Good news, because at that time shall Mikael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of your people. Somehow, somewhere along the way, between these holy scriptures and these prophecies being given and where we are today, the whole agenda of God has been hijacked. 
that when we read this, that Michael will stand up for the children of your people, well, this is Christians today. This is Gentile Christians all over the world. And we have basically thrown out Israel to say God has nothing to do with Israel. It's now all about Gentile Christians. Daniel would never think this way. In fact, when he was praying in in chapter 9, he's making confession for the sins of himself and his people, for their rebellion against God, and he's looking for salvation for his people. And so the communication with him is about his people. And somehow Gentiles get in the picture, hijack the whole thing, and throw Israel out. So, for the rest of the sermon, I'm just going to wear this. Just so you know, this is none of my business. I'm a Gentile. If I have any ability to preach anything to you, it's because I've been grafted in to the Hebrew community. And I now stand before you as an Israelite. And I'm speaking to you as Israelites. And this thing that's going on in the whole universe has to do with the creator of the universe making a covenant with a man called Abraham. And this God being so faithful that it doesn't matter what human beings do, When he speaks his word, he fulfills it. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, that which is not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. This has everything to do with the Hebrews. Nothing to do with Gentiles. Except that in his mercy, he has opened the door for Gentiles to be grafted in, to be a part of this. Let us not... Boast against the root. We draw our nutrition from the root. The root is alive and well, or we would not be nourished. So Daniel says, or Gabe Michael is going to stand up for the children of Daniel's people, which are the Jews. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time, that trouble is upon Jerusalem. And at that time, your people, Daniel, your people, nothing to do with Gentiles, shall be delivered. Every one that shall be found written in the book. Turn with me to Jeremiah 16. Jeremiah 16. And in verse 10, Jeremiah writes, And it shall come to pass... When you shall show this people all these words, and they shall say unto you, Why has the Lord pronounced this great evil against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against Yahweh our God? Then you shall say unto them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, says Yahweh, and have walked after other gods, and have served them, and have worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law. This is what your fathers did. And you know what? And you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, you walk every one after the imagination of his evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. Therefore I will cast you out of this land, into a land that you know not, according to Deuteronomy, neither you nor your fathers, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. 
What horrible news. But it doesn't end there. We have glad tidings. We have good news. We have a gospel rooted in the prophecies. And here it is. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days come, says Yahweh, that it shall no more be said, as the Lord lives, that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. We won't say that anymore. Instead, we'll say this. The Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. This is what the prophets look forward to. This is what Daniel saw. This is what Moses saw. This is what Isaiah saw. This is what Jeremiah saw. And then we allow Greek philosophers to infiltrate the church and throw all of this away. Let's not do that. Let's humble ourselves and realize that something is going on on this earth, in this universe, by the Creator. And He's invited us to be a part of it. Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 and verse 1, we have our commission. Those who are faithful with understanding, the first fruits of Israel, Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. Speak you comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her. What should we cry unto her? That her warfare is accomplished. The purpose of the beast power has been accomplished. You have been driven to repentance. Cry to her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then just turn over to chapter 41 and verse 8. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. The creator of the universe has chosen Jacob. If that insults you, if that offends you, oh well, oh well, God has chosen Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. You, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and we see this theme over and over, that these people will be scattered because of their rebellion, but then they will be gathered because of God's mercy. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called you from the chief men thereof. So even these chief men could not hold on to them because of what the God of the universe is doing in fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And I said unto you, you, Jacob, are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you away. So the Greek philosophers are wrong. God has not cast away Jacob. He's chosen Jacob. And because of his faithfulness, despite Jacob's rebellion, God will fulfill his word to Abraham through Jacob. Let's do the remaining three chapters. Again, talk with your partner. I'd like you to do two things. One is, what have you heard so far? What's your understanding so far of what you've heard? And how would you organize the remaining three chapters? What order would you put them in? So we have teaching teachers, God's glory, and atonement at last.
For chapter 3, I'd like you to write, Atonement at last. Atonement at last. So God has made these promises to Abraham. The very people that he made a nation, that he brought them out of Egypt and made them a nation, these people rebelled against him severely. And so he's had to severely punish them. While they're in the midst of being obliterated, that's when the Lord returns. And he saves them. He has called, prior to that, the first fruits. He's opened up the door of the first fruits to bring in Gentiles into this first fruit mix. The first fruits will be his helpers as he returns to rescue his people and to bring these people in unity with himself. Now, look at Zechariah 14. Just to be clear, and this is something we really need to be very clear about, the atonement or the at-one-ment does not include Gentiles. Gentiles have nothing to do with the God of Abraham. They have to repent and be grafted in and come through Israel to God. So when God returns and establishes his kingdom and is at one with his people, here we read in Zechariah 14 and verse 16, it shall come to pass that everyone that is left, so there's going to be this great battle as they were trying to destroy Jerusalem, great battle, God puts down this rebellion, but everyone that is left of all the nations, that's the Gentiles, which came against Jerusalem, what's going to happen? They shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. They will access the God of the universe through his people in Jerusalem. And it shall be, notice this, in terms of the atonement, and it shall be, verse 17, that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, then there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all Gentiles that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's very clear when God returns to the earth, we cannot assume that there is unity with the Gentile nations, that there will still be some Gentile nations that are holding out, that are stubborn. The atonement is with his people, and let's go to Leviticus 16 to see what the atonement is all about. So trumpets picturing the Lord's return. Immediately upon his return, then, we see the atonement. In Leviticus 16 and verse 15, we read this about the sin offering. Verse 15, then shall he, that is the high priest, kill the goat of the sin offering. And what is this offering for? That is for the people, the whole nation. So the atonement sacrifice differs from the Passover sacrifice. The Passover sacrifice is where the personal relationship begins. And in a sense, the traditional Christians are right about this. There is a personal aspect to salvation, and that begins with Passover. But there has always been a national aspect of salvation. All the prophets were looking for God to save the people, to save Israel. And so this is what they saw, and this is what atonement pictured, 
the forgiveness of the nation. That the sin offering is for the people and will bring his veil within the blood and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Now, it's not just for the people. The atonement is also for the holy place. Verse 16. And he shall make an atonement, not just for the people, but for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So the atonement is for Israel. Finally, God is at one with his people, both first fruits and fall harvest, both natural-born and Gentiles grafted in, both those that are born into the kingdom, into the family, and the physical. Everyone that is God's now is at one. The Gentile nations are outside. They can come and worship and learn through Israel. Chapter 4, teaching teachers. That's why we're here. There's going to be a physical operation on the earth. Just as you travel to get here, Gentiles will be traveling all over to get to Jerusalem to be taught during the Feast of Tabernacles. Physical human beings will be teaching them. You and I need to teach those human beings. So we need to be serious about our study. Sitting back with our feet up, saying, I hope I make it into the kingdom, isn't good enough. We're here to study and learn and grasp and have an ability with the scriptures so that we can teach the Jews and the rest of Israel what the scriptures mean. So that they, in turn, can teach others. That eternity, eternal life, will be available to everyone through this process. There's no other way. This is the process. Jeremiah 3 and verse 12. Go and proclaim these words to the north and say, return, you backsliding Israel, says Yahweh. And I will not cause my anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, says Yahweh. And I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against Yahweh your God, and you've scattered your ways to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, says Yahweh. Turn, O backsliding children, says Yahweh, for I am married unto you, and I will take you, one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And you get the sense now of the personal aspect of salvation, that they have to come to the Passover sacrifice, not just the atonement. I will take you, one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And notice this. This is where you come in. God says to these people, and I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. So if you're not taking the study seriously, if I'm not taking the study seriously, can we become pastors according to God's heart? We have to have this vision, and then we have to get busy because we understand what God is doing and that we've been invited to be a part of this. So we will be the pastors according to God's heart. And what will we do? We'll feed Israel with knowledge and understanding because we have it. You can't give what you don't have. So we will have an ability with the scriptures that we can now pass it on to others. Zechariah 8, 
Zechariah 8. I'll just pick up a couple of scriptures here. Zechariah 8. And let's begin in verse 1. Again, the word of Yahweh of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. Zion is the Lord's. He hasn't chosen anybody else. He wants Zion. And so he had this great jealousy for her. Thus says Yahweh, I am returned unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So despite the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, despite all its power, the victory will transfer from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the center. And God will return to Jerusalem. And he will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth. Right now it's a city of lies and falsehood and wickedness. But it shall be called a city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem. A remarkable verse, verse 4 that despite Satan unleashing his full wrath upon Jerusalem, God says, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem. And every man with his staff in his hand for a very age, that no one will harm them. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Puts to mind the special music we had. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in my eyes, says Yahweh of hosts? Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and the west country, and I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Now drop down to verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities. So now we turn to the Gentiles. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go speedily, I pray, before Yahweh and seek Yahweh of hosts. These are people who are worshiping the beast. These are people who thought some false god was God. And now they're saying, we can't get to Jerusalem fast enough. So here they are. Let's go speedily to pray before Yahweh and to seek Yahweh of hosts. I will go also. Yes, indeed. Verse 22. Many people, strong nations, shall come to seek Yahweh of hosts in Jerusalem. Not in Babylon. Babylon is done. Jerusalem is now the center. And people all over the world are now saying, let's go to Jerusalem. Strong nations. And they'll come there to pray before Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, in those days, it shall come. When God says something, it's going to happen. You can take this to the bank. In those days, it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. We saw this morning, Exodus 19.6 was the scripture. 
that God will make this, these people a peculiar nation, a special people above all people of the earth. That means that there are some people of the earth that are not part of this. And they're going to be looking up to these people. And so for the Jews to have this prominence where people are going to hold on to them, they have to be educated. And that's the only reason we're here now. It's not because I was born special. And I, you know, I hope I make it into the kingdom because I'm just so special. It's that God has a passion for his people. And he's recruited us for his people. And he's going to exalt his people so that he can bring salvation to all mankind. That's the plan. That's what we're a part of. Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30 and verse 18. And therefore will Yahweh wait, that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For Yahweh is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. The Jews will dwell in Zion. Despite Satan's agenda, God has an agenda. He was just using Satan. God's people, the Jews, will dwell, the physical people, in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious unto you at the voice of your cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer you. You know, if we would preach what the prophecies wrote, what the the prophets wrote, not only would we have a gospel for the Gentiles, the Jews would actually understand what we're talking about. Because the Jews are looking for national salvation. And we never talk about it. And it's right here. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious unto you at the voice of your cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, that's the purpose of the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, although he's going to do this to you, yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers. Are we preparing for this? Are we grasping the scriptures? so that we can stand up in front of these people and teach them? When they have questions, we can answer them? When things unfold, we can turn to the scriptures and say, this is why? This is why we're here. And your ears shall hear... Because we're so passionate about what God is doing, we have this passion for these people. And when they start to veer off track, the scripture says, your ear shall hear a word behind you saying, boom, this is the way. Walk you in it. And when you turn to the right hand, and when you turn to the left. We get it. We're not sitting there, I've made it. Nothing to do now. I've made it. No, now the work begins. You know, I, I, we had a dog. I, I told the brethren in Burlington about this. We had this beautiful dog named Kenya. And what always fascinated me is she'd be sleeping, snoring. And then I would get up to go outside, and she would immediately wake up. And I said, where are we going? What are we doing now? And like, whatever I'm doing, she's like, I'm going to go run for a, go for a run. Okay, let's go for a run. And I'm like, you were just fast asleep a second ago. How does that happen? And she's like, if it's important to you, it's important to me. And that's how we should be. Yahweh, if it's important to you, it's important to us. And what God is doing with his people is very important to him. And yet we say we don't care. We want it to be about us. It's not about us. 
We're being recruited into something much bigger than ourselves. I'm going to give you some scriptures to look up. Isaiah 46.10, 46.13. But let's turn to Isaiah 44.21 as we look at the final chapter, God's glory. Actually, let's go to 46.13. As we look at this final chapter, God's glory, Isaiah 46 and verse 13. Isaiah 46 and verse 13. He says, I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off. And my salvation shall not tarry. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. God's glory is Israel. And the fact that From ancient times with Abraham, he declared that he would be glorified in Abraham's seed. When everything has worked against this agenda, and God still brings it about, this is the glory of Yahweh, the glory and the power of his word. Isaiah 44 and verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You shall not be forgotten of me. Did you hear that, brethren? Israel will not be forgotten of God. So when God looks at the DNA pattern of this earth, whoever has Israelite DNA, they will not be forgotten. And so Satan can come and do whatever he wants to these nations. We're watching the nations of Israel collapse now. And what a horrible time it's going to be. And yet God says they will not be forgotten. I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions and as a cloud your sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed you. Now listen to the joy. Sing, O you heavens, for the Lord has done it. This is it. This this is the priority, and it's been done. Sing, O you heavens. The whole universe, sing, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains. Everybody, the whole creation should rejoice, because this is the most important priority of Yahweh, and he's done it. Sing, O forest, and every tree therein, for Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in the Gentiles because he doesn't care about Israel. That would make him a faithless God. He's remembering his promise to Abraham. And his glory, God's glory, is in Israel. And when all the nations look at what he does with Israel, they will say, surely, this is the true God. And when Israel themselves read the scriptures and see what God has done in Israel, everybody will glorify God. I would like you to read Isaiah chapter 60. It's just a wonderful, wonderful chapter. And and read the whole chapter to understand God's glory. But I'll just read verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. That is Israel. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. That is Israel. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon you. 
and his glory shall be seen upon you. Oh, I read two verses. I meant to read one. I might as well read three. And the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And I'll stop. This is just, if I, I, I have to restrain myself. It is just so amazing what God is going to do through Israel. But read, please read Isaiah 60. Let's go to Micah 4. Micah 4. Micah 4, verse 1. It's probably being read all around the Feast of Tabernacles. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and Gentile peoples shall flow to it. Remember, God has gathered all his people in the promised land. Gentiles are now coming. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh and the house of the God of Jacob. He'll be glorified in Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his paths. In other words, there will be physical human beings that will be teaching the Gentiles. We will be teaching these human beings. He will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. Because the law shall go forth from Zion, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he shall judge many people, among many people, and rebuke strong nations far off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they war, learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. And you really get the image here of the Jews and Israel in the promised land sitting under the fig tree. And the nations coming, and none of them being afraid. Even though they were surrounded by these nations earlier for, for complete slaughter. For all the people will walk everyone in the name of his God. So there's still freedom of choice here. And the nations can walk in the name of their God if they want to. But we will walk, that is these physical human beings who've been redeemed, will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, will I assemble her that halts, who has been injured, and I will gather her that was driven out, and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast, cast off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth and forever. So brethren, that's the story that we want to tell to the nations. That these empires that we see fighting for global domination, that are going to afflict God's people, they are merely beasts of burden, carrying out the Lord's will. We have good news glad tidings. The Lord will be glorified in Zion. And when he returns and he puts down the enemies of his people, he will then have atonement with his people. The, the, the city will be cleansed and purified. The nation will be cleansed and purified. And they will be set up as the head nation on the earth. But he's developing now the teachers that will teach these teachers. So these Jews and these Israelites, these physical human beings, will be teaching, much like I'm teaching you now. This will be the Jews teaching the Gentiles, and we will be teaching the Jews. So this is the college that we're a part of now. This is, this is teacher's college. We've got to take this seriously. 
We've got to master God's mind. Can't say that's, that's wrong. We can't. We've got to dig into God's mind and learn and learn so that we can teach. Let's, uh, and then we have God's glory, which will be in Israel, and all the nations will come and learn of salvation through Israel. Let's conclude in Romans 9. Romans 9. This is the Apostle Paul who struck down on the road to Damascus, had this conversion, this great rabbi who became a follower of Christ, who didn't go through life with the perspective, I hope I make it. You know, I killed all these people. I hope I make it. He was totally bought in to God's agenda. God's priorities were his priorities. And he says here in Romans 9 and verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's got two, two witnesses, himself and his conscience in the Holy Spirit. That I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, for my kinsmen according to the flesh. Kind of sounds like Moses. God, don't destroy them. Destroy me if they're not going to make it. I want your name glorified in Israel. And what would, the, what would the nation say if you destroy Israel? So these men had God's mind. They were not in it for themselves. And maybe just so that we digest the rest of what Paul is saying here, let's just, again, give ourselves that, that anti-narcissism vaccination. This is not about us. We have been included in something grand. But let's not make it about us. He says, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. He's depressed over this. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertains, this has nothing to do with Gentiles, to the Israelite pertains the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the Torah, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. And chapter 10, Romans 10, we'll just finish here. Romans 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer and I hope all of our heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So that God's name can be glorified in Israel. The whole universe is going to sing and shout for joy when this happens. Are we going to be there like, hey, what about me? I thought this was all about me. This is about God's glory in Israel. And he's bringing it about and we're invited to be a part of it. And my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. So we are here, brethren, as the first fruits, looking forward into the fall harvest, when God will call all Israel and gather them and be at one with them, so that there can then be the feast of ingathering of the Gentiles. But the feast of ingathering doesn't happen unless atonement happens. And atonement happens because Christ returns. 
God will be glorified in Israel. I'm going to conclude where I began with this pledge of these carnal human beings. And my challenge to us is, can we stir up the Holy Spirit within us to rise even above this pledge? Without regard for my personal comfort or self-advancement. I hope I make it. I hope I go to the place of safety. I hope nothing ever happens to me. Let's shelve that. Without regard for my personal comfort or self-advancement, to the best of my ability, are we studying? Are we digging in? Are we fellowshipping? Are we learning and growing to the best of my ability? And to the limitations of my physical and psychological endurance, he that endures to the end will be saved. Are we pressing to the end? I solemnly pledge to make every effort to return to safety those Israelite victims of disaster that they brought upon themselves from violating the covenant. And God is a God of judgment and a God of righteousness. But yet, he's a God of mercy. And so I solemnly pledge, as I've been baptized into this this unique and profound work, I solemnly pledge to make every effort to return to Jerusalem, to Zion. The people shall dwell in Zion in safety. After coming through all this trauma, those victims of disaster entrusted to my care by the assignment of the mission to which I have consented, which I did at baptism. These things I shall do, and I hope you shall do, and we shall do, that others may live.